Welcome to Senior Straight Talk with Phyllis Amon and Rubina Chaudhry. Seniors deserve to have a life with respect, dignity, and fulfillment. But as we transition into elderhood, this doesn't always happen. Join us today as we discuss some of the most important issues that seniors face and provide much-needed answers to your questions. Now, here are Phyllis and Rubina. Welcome to Senior Straight Talk, where we present informative conversations for the senior years of our lives. The show, formerly known as Voices for Elder Care Advocacy, has been rebranded with expanded content and topics. All previous episodes of Voices for Elder Care Advocacy can be found on the Voice America Empowerment Channel and is available on all of your favorite podcast platforms. I'm Phyllis Amon, your host. My co-host, Rubina Chaudhry, is on hiatus for a few weeks. My guest today is Dr. David Grabowski. I am both honored and humbled that he's taken the time from his busy schedule to have a conversation with me on Senior Straight Talk. Dr. David Grabowski is a professor of healthcare policy in the Department of Healthcare Policy at Harvard Medical School. His research examines the economics of aging with particular interest in the areas of long-term care and post-acute care. He's been the principal investigator on five grants from the National Institute on Aging on projects related to the value of post-acute care, skilled nursing facility payment, demand for long-term care insurance, specialization in dementia care, and nonprofit provision of nursing home care. His research has been supported by a number of foundations, and he led a team at Harvard in the evaluation of payment models used for the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Uh, he's also a member of the Medicare Payment Advisory Commission, which is an independent agency established to advise the United States Congress on issues affecting the Medicare program. And he recently testified before the House Ways and Means Committee and the House Subcommittee looking into the effects of COVID-19 on nursing homes and has served on several centers for Medicare and Medicaid services technical expert panels. In 2004, Dr. Grabowski was the recipient of the Thompson Prize for Young Investigators from the Association of University Programs in Health Administration. Welcome, Dr. Grabowski. Thanks so much, Phyllis. Thanks for having me on, and I appreciate that uh, nice introduction. Well, it's, um, it's part of what you've accomplished and what you bring to the table and, and um, your insights, your research, your, your recommendations, they're so valuable. Uh, being that I come from the skilled nursing home facility space, I'm thrilled to have a conversation with you to shed light on your conclusions and recommendations about the virus, its effects on the nursing home population and healthcare workers, and, and what do you see for the industry moving forward? Uh, where would you like to begin? Uh, let, let's let's begin today with the virus and where where things stand and uh, h- how do we get out of this mess that that we've gotten into? Does that does that sound good? Uh, that sounds great. Yeah, I you know it's interesting. I I, I always start with a simple point. It, it it doesn't have to be this way. We really uh, we really could have dealt with this virus in, in the nursing home sector very directly, but instead we, we failed to invest in measures that we all know work. It's not a secret as to what 
or the measures that can really combat the virus. It's testing, it's personal protective equipment, it's supporting our, our staff. And by supporting our staff, I mean paying them a, a living wage and uh, providing them with non-punitive sick leave and, and other benefits. We, we, we've, we've for far too long undervalued the staff and th- there, there are ways out of this uh, situation in nursing homes, but we've just failed to, to make the investments. And so the data as of, as of today that, that we're speaking, Phyllis, suggests 60,000 uh, residents have died in nursing homes nationwide. Uh, that, that's far too many, and I'm really worried over the next few weeks and months if, if we don't take steps to really combat this, this virus and really put, put measures in place to con- contain and mitigate the, the spread and further outbreaks, we're going to see tens of thousands more deaths. And I'm not trying to, to scare anyone, and I'm not trying to sensationalize this. I, I said this back in March. If, if we don't get a handle on this, we're going to see a lot of deaths among residents. We're going to see a, a, a lot of issues in terms of isolation and loneliness, and that's exactly what we've seen unfortunately. And uh, the final point I wanted to make is that this hasn't just been a hard issue on the residents. It's also been incredibly challenging for the staff. And Mm -hmm. we know from the most recent CMS data that we've had nearly 800 staff members die nationally. And I want to make this point up front because I want to make certain this this comes across. Uh, We we did a calculation and we published a a Washington Post uh, op-ed um, actually, j- just just earlier this week, suggesting being a, a caregiver in a nursing home right now is the most dangerous job in America. So more dangerous than being, uh, you know, working in the logging industry, more di- dangerous than being a commercial fisherman working oh in a nursing goodness. home. Yeah, who would have thought, right? That that that's just, in, uh, you know, it's it's really incredible, Phyllis, that I, that I, uh, I, it's I gotten speechless. to this. Yeah, no, and so anything we can really do to support this workforce in terms of personal protective equipment, testing, and uh, increased wages and and, and benefits is really long overdue. Well, um, when you talk about personal protective equipment, uh, I have been in nursing homes during this this period of time, and... um, that's actually a, an area of concern, not only the amount of PPE that is available for healthcare workers, but the quality of PPE. And is anything being done or looked into to have a, a certain standard um, that would be appropriate for healthcare workers to have available to them? Because I can tell you that just um, a short time ago, I was in a facility and had to put on a gown because uh, the person in the room wasn't, it was, had just come from the hospital, so they were being quarantined even though they didn't have any symptoms. And when I took out uh, the PPE, it was, it was thinner than a garbage bag. And it, it was really like a repurposed garbage bag. I couldn't even figure out where to put my head. So yeah. is there any standard that, that is going to be applied to what facilities can utilize for healthcare workers? Unfortunately, we've been very lax in terms of monitoring the quality of the PPE. So even nursing homes that are reporting we have PPE, they don't have the N95 masks, they don't have the appropriate gowns, uh, they don't have the goggles, the, you know, the, the gloves, every, everything that, that's required, and they don't have enough of it. And so they're reusing supplies and they're using uh, lower-grade supplies. And what you just described, Phyllis, that, that's 
I'm, I'm hearing that from other uh, leaders, leaders and, and, and staff members across the country. So that's not a that's not an isolated incident. That that's uh, un- unfortunately been somewhat common across across nursing homes and that's unacceptable like we we need to you know i i say this over and over again but the uh, caregivers right now in nursing homes are heroes and we haven't always treated them like heroes but they're they're uh they're absolutely uh going into these nursing homes uh many of them are 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 receiving close to minimum wage Uh, many of them have put their own health on the line and the health of their families on the line to to do this important care we need to support them and the fact that we're not giving them adequate PPE is, is really unacceptable. Uh, the, the final point I wanted to make on this issue was that we, we, this has been recognized and, and we have tried to address the lack of PPE as a country. One of the main steps, as you know, was uh, FEMA, uh, the you know, <laughs> Federal uh, Emergency Management uh, uh, Agency, attempted to uh, mail every nursing home in the country two weeks of personal protective equipment, and unfortunately, uh, they were slow to do that. And then many of the many of the nursing homes received inadequate PPE, exactly like what you're describing. I think one provider called it uh, glorified garbage bags, and so right, uh, we, we, is, right. we unacceptable. So we need to do a better job uh, as a country of of, of getting. The, the, there's a lot of things I think we'll we'll talk about today that are that are really complicated, and maybe we'll talk about testing. Or financing of nursing home care. There, there's some there, there's some subjects that are that are obviously really really complicated. But I, I think of this issue as really straightforward. We need to get uh, PPE to the workforce, and we can do this. And we 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 should have nationalized the supply chain from the beginning. Uh, we should have uh, repurposed American factories and, and 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 produced this ourselves, and really made it a, a point to get get PPE to every every healthcare worker, not just in nursing homes but elsewhere, and we, we just haven't done that. And so we're left with this, this place where nursing homes lack adequate PPE, and then they're, they're bidding against uh, hospitals and physicians' offices and others. It's just mm-hmm. I, I sort of feel like nursing homes have been at the back of the line. I don't know if that's been your feeling as well. Uh, absolutely. I, um, I was uh, in, in March. I'm in the uh, tri-state area. So in March... Um, and April, I was actually in a covering in two separate facilities. One, the speech pathologist, her father had passed away from the uh, virus, and, and another one, they just needed some speech coverage. And um, I knew several people through the years that worked there, so I, I went. And um, there, there was a dichotomy. There were some places, the, this one facility, they had everything from head to toe for everybody in the facility, which was very impressive. And when I asked the uh, director of nurses how they accomplished that, she said they got on this very early, and um, the administrator wanted to spare no expense, and she, the administrator, and the director of central supply bought PPE from everywhere in the world, however much they needed, uh, because they were determined that their healthcare workers in their facility, and, and every healthcare worker, whether they worked in the kitchen or whether they were a uh, housekeeping person, uh, they're still an essential worker. 
And so that was really remarkable, but I think it also had to do with foresight. You know, this amount of PPE or this expectation is nothing that a nursing home would have on hand or would have anticipated. So I think for those people who could see it, maybe, and jumped on it early, um, they had a better chance of supplying their, their workers, as opposed to others who, when they came to it a little later, there was nothing available and the price was outrageous. Would you say that's a fair assessment from your research? Uh, absolutely. So just, just from the national data we're seeing, and these are from the CMS data, about one in five nursing homes is reporting a, a shortage of, of personal protective equipment, but I think a number of others really lack kind of sufficient amounts. And there, there have been some places, I've heard those stories as well, very similar to what you just described, of nursing homes, either they were, they were hospital-affiliated, so they were part of a bigger healthcare system, or they were, they were able to, to act relatively early, and they deserve a ton of credit. I just wish we had been able to get every nursing home out there, even those, as you suggested, that, that maybe acted a little bit later, they shouldn't be punished for that. They, they may have been in a part of a country where uh, they, they, there wasn't as big an outbreak. Um, you know, potentially they didn't have the resources to do that. They, they, so th- this was completely uh, unprecedented, this, this need for this amount of, of, of PPE. Uh, expecting nursing homes to have huge stockpiles of, of PPE. Hospitals didn't have that. How would we expect right. nursing homes to have, like, right. warehouses full of <laughs> PPE to do totally this? And so we we don't even have the space for it, so no, let alone no. the need for it. Um, interesting that, that you, you said about – I'm interested in the supply chain part of it because yes. uh, it gets rather costly. So what are your thoughts or feelings on uh, nursing home owners or providers having to outlay this money themselves as opposed to it being provided by the government? I would have loved to have seen the government provide this from, from the start. Uh, that would have ensured several things. One, that every nursing home in the country had it. This was too important. This was the lives of the, of the residents and the staff that were on the line here. So uh, we, we sh- we, we, I think there's an imperative that we, that we invest in this uh, and, and, and purchase it and not really leave this up to the to the market because what we've seen happen, and you described it perfectly, if you didn't act early, and this is even true of places that bought PPE early, when they went back to buy more several weeks later, uh, the prices were double, triple, you know, and many multiples higher. It just was unaffordable, or they couldn't even find it. And, they, and sometimes, you know, we, we, we've heard stories of, of nursing homes buying PPE that, that was unusable, sort of what you described earlier with the very thin gowns and gowns without armholes and just all sorts of things, child-sized masks, you know, just, right. just unacceptable. Uh, so we really should have been buying high-grade, appropriate, and adequate amounts of PPE and then getting it to these nursing homes on a regular basis. You know, I, I mentioned earlier that FEMA did, did offer two weeks of, of PPE to every facility in the country. That's a good start, but we know this pandemic has been going on for, we're on, on month five now. Right. It's, it's, it's not a two-week pandemic, and, and we don't need a two-week solution. We need a, a continual solution until, until we're, we're out of the woods here. And so I, I, I really believe that the federal government should have, should have taken leadership here and just supplied this. But in, in many respects, they pushed it out to the states. The states then pushed it to the facilities. And even if the federal government or the state is providing some dollars to, to help with the purchase, it, there, there's just not a market to, to actually buy it. 
Absolutely. And something that's of concern for me and for many people, now that the virus is spiking in several states around the country, um, there's going to be a greater need in those states uh, for PPE. Uh, people aren't really talking about the nursing homes so much anymore. The uh, coverage has gone on to some other areas. And I think we need to continue to shine a spotlight on nursing homes. Yes, there are younger people that are um, increasing numbers that are affected by the virus, but there are also people of many different ages that work in nursing homes. So I, I am a firm believer, as you are, that healthcare workers are, in nursing homes are really unsung heroes. And, um, you know, media coverage, even in the beginning, focused on hospitals and nurses and doctors and respiratory therapists. There's really little talk of healthcare workers in nursing homes. I, I, I completely agree. And unfortunately, because we didn't give them attention, because we didn't give them adequate testing and PPE, they became vectors, and they both brought the, the virus unknowingly into the facility, but then their coworkers brought it back out to the community. And so we know that went, went both directions. There was a fascinating uh, study by a group of economists that was released uh, just a week ago, roughly, and they found that almost half of cases nationally, half of the outbreaks could be attributed to staff actually having to work at multiple facilities and taking them from building to building, uh, once again, we didn't give them the protection, and so they became the vectors that, that, that spread this. And, uh, you know, here's a group that has dedicated their lives to, to caring for residents and protecting these residents, and they were unknowingly bringing this into the buildings. And, by the way, not just putting the residents at risk, but then putting their own families and, and neighbors and loved ones at, at risk. It just, it, it, it's just, it's really tragic. And so, I think going going forward, how do, how do we really treat these these workers and value these workers like the heroes that they are? And some of that's that's obviously direct through through paying them a living wage. But I think the other part of this is actually doing what we should have been doing from the beginning here, and that's testing and, and personal protective equipment. Oh, absolutely. It's um, and as the um the population continues to age, there are going to be more need for healthcare workers. I don't know about, I'm interested actually in your opinion about this. I spoke with someone about this the other day as well, uh, which is I think people um, knowing what they know about what happened in the nursing homes and the spread of the virus. I know a couple of facilities personally who are um, suffering in terms of admissions because people rather go home and get as much care as they can at home because they're reluctant to enter a nursing home environment, even not only for this virus, but knowing what has been exposed about the care and the value that the healthcare workers um, receive and, and the issues associated with nursing homes. So what do you see, uh, you know, in terms of nursing homes moving forward um, in terms of even their viability, especially yeah, the a, larger a, ones. Oh, absolutely! It's a great question, and I, I just to give you some numbers uh, today, relative to January first of this year, there's about a hundred thousand fewer individuals in nursing homes. So um, that's that's a huge drop in census. Obviously, some of that is is, is unfortunately fatalities, but some of that is 
there, there's sort of two parts of that. Some of that is, is, is family members pulling, pulling their loved ones out of nursing homes, and then that's exactly what you described, those decreased admissions. I don't think that's a, that's a short-term phenomenon. I think this is going to last for a long time. People are really going to um, question this decision to, to put their loved ones in, uh, you know, in, in, into, a, into a nursing home. Uh, I think we've, we've Always known that we we have a we have a waiting list and a excess demand for home and community based services in this country. But I, I, I think one of the, one of the outgrowths of, of COVID is going to be, I think, a renewed um, a renewed attention and investment in those services as uh, a potential substitute to, to nursing homes. And then I, I think in the, in the longer run, are we going to see kind of a, a refashioning of, of of the nursing home sector? I think you said in your question, you know, these these large buildings. I, you know, some of our re- research suggested uh, COVID was was uh, much more likely to enter larger versus smaller facilities, and that makes perfect sense, right? It's less right. less activity going in and out of the building, and in, in terms of staff that, that that might bring it in, and so a, a smaller building is probably going to do a lot to to protect the residents. You know, those smaller home models really have a lot of potential, not just as a uh, as a way to protect residents from infections but also as a way to improve quality of life for for the residents you know we've seen some really strong models like the greenhouse model for example uh-huh. that are that are small home and really offer uh, a, a much different uh, culture than a, than a traditional nursing home so I, I, I do think there, there, there are probably two parts to this. One, I do think maybe demand for, for nursing home services is going to go down over time. Uh, I, I wonder, however, if, if all those aging baby boomers you talked about will, will, will bring back some of it, you know, just in terms of numbers, it'll, it'll come back, but on a per capita basis, it'll, it'll be declining. Right. But then I, I, I do think we'll see some pivoting in, in the marketplace from these larger, more institutional buildings to, to smaller, more, more home-like models. But I think the, these, these, these smaller home models, it's going to take money and resources, and mm-hmm. that's always challenging to do with with Medicaid as as the predominant payer. How do you how do you sort of retrofit all of this this capital, these big institutions, and turn them into uh, smaller small home models? It, it, it's that that's going that's going to be a real challenge over the next several years and, and probably decades, right? Absolutely, and uh, actually, the, you and I spoke about this uh, when we had our. Uh, conversation leading up to uh, this, this conversation, uh, there, was, there is a facility in, um, in Chelsea, Massachusetts. Um, well, first there's the Leonard Florence Center for Living. That's the first urban greenhouse that was built from the ground up. But right. then um, uh, the director, Barry Berman, went back, and when you say about repurposing, or uh, he went back and repurposed the Chelsea, I think it's Chelsea Jewish Nursing Home, Yes. And try to, um, you know, do it in a way as close as much as he could uh, to get close to that greenhouse model because it was a traditional building, and he had to raise thirteen million dollars to do it. So, yeah. what's the viability of that really happening? My other question, talking about that, because my last show I interviewed uh, Dr. Bill Thomas, that was really phenomenal as well. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Um, that. Um, 
with these increasing number of people that are getting older and are going to need more care because people are living longer and the advancements in medicine have allowed people to live longer with, um, you know, more serious conditions, more comor- comorbidities, how that greenhouse model is, is, a, is a smaller home model. Uh, the Leonard Florence Center for Living, I think, I don't remember how many floors it has, but each, each uh, home um, is a... I forgot how many um, homes there are because I don't want to say rooms. That's kind of like an institutional word. Right. Um, you know, on each floor, let's say. Uh, it can accommodate the, the large numbers that I can't foresee that moving forward compared to the number of older people that are going to have needs in a skilled nursing facility space. So how do you think that will work? Yeah, so so um, most greenhouses uh, they they care from you know eight to twelve older adults, and it's it's each has you know I'll, I'll use the word I guess their own room, but you're right that that's sort of a private uh, you know private room, private bathroom. It's this private uh, dwelling actually. It's like their yeah, apartment no, it's, in a way, right? It's yeah, it's it's really it's it's a beautiful structure, but it's also more than just the the living environment. It's obviously the the culture and the the a way in which staff are valued. So it's it's really about uh, a resident-directed model and uh, a model that that values uh, the direct caregivers, and then obviously changing the, the the capital structure as well. But you're exactly right. It's it's expensive to build those buildings, and and uh, you know in terms of uh, space, it's just you're you're not, uh, especially in urban areas, um, able to to sort of have as much uh, as as many residents in a in a in a building as as you might in a in an, in a more traditional model but I would say that if we want um, you know individuals to have a high quality of life and a high quality of care we have to think about the, these these types of investments and so I I, I, I don't think it's going to be cheap but it, you know going back to your original question if, if we want to emphasize uh, home and community-based alternatives of course you know that, that that's we, we want to do that but I I, I do believe there's always going to be a group of, of older adults that, for different reasons, are going to require nursing home services. And when they do, how do we make certain that that's a, that's a, a strong model and, and one that's consistent with what they want and what we would all want from, from uh, this care? And so I, 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 I'm, I'm not trying to minimize the cost. I, I think you're exactly right to push me on it. I would I would push back, however, just to say that I think it's an investment we, we, we would want to make. And, uh, you know, we, we, we invest a lot in other parts of the, of the health care system. Uh, and, and this is an area where I think there would be a, a really high return to the, to the residents in terms of uh, the, the, their quality of life and, and, their, and their sort of uh, quality of care. Yeah, I, I 100% agree. And we're going to uh, go to a break in a moment, but I um I would say that actually some um, facilities, which of course the ones that that are more traditional and more institutional-like, more hospital-like, that there can be some transformation in those facilities, but it has to do with mindset, provider mindset, and maybe when we come back we could talk about that. But also I think it has to do with when you talk about financial investment, it has to do with um, how we really value and think about older people in our society. And um, we don't in, in the way 
I think, that would be necessary for us to make that kind of financial investment. Yeah, I completely agree. And let, let, let's, uh, let's get into this after the break. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, we'll be right back with Seniors Straight Talk and my wonderful conversation with Dr. David Grabowski. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Phyllis Amon, owner of Phyllis Amon Associates, provides strategic solutions to families seeking care for their loved ones and coaches them to become more effective advocates. Her expertise comes from working in over 45 nursing homes. Phyllis, known for her passion, empathy, high-quality care standards, and quality life for older adults, is an experienced educator, speaker, and trainer. She's bridged the gap from healthcare to public and private sector businesses on topics from communication, caregiving, empathy, and novel approaches to team building and leadership. Rubina Chaudhry is president and founder of Mars Services, an engineering management consulting firm, as well as founder and president of All of Community Services, a 501c3 providing support services to seniors, families, and the community. Olive's Live, Learn, and Thrive programs engage seniors physically, mentally, and socially. Rubina's passion for seniors stems from her experiences as an only child, living miles away from her aging parents who are over 90 years of age. She understands the issues and decisions caregivers face. Visit olivecs.org for further information. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are tuned in to Senior Straight Talk with Phyllis Amon and Rubina Chaudhry. If you'd like to leave us a question or comment about our program, please feel free to email the hosts at phyllis at seniorstraighttalk.com. Now, back to Senior Straight Talk. Welcome back to Senior Straight Talk. I'm here with my guest, David Dr. Grabowski. We're having a wonderful conversation about um, nursing homes, older people, which is where we left off, and... Um, we were talking about the financial investment that would be required to create living environments, I'll say, that are, are more um, appropriate, I would say, or provide a better quality of care and quality of life for older people. But um, our attitudes um, about older people um, would, would play into that. So um, let's talk about that a little bit. Well, I, I, absolutely. I, I think... For far too long in this country, we've been unwilling to, to think about nursing homes and, and long-term care more generally, and I think that's led to uh, a lot of a lot of biases and, and ageism, if you will. I, we're, we're we're not um, valuing those uh, older adults, and we're not planning ahead for them in a way that is consistent with their needs and their their preferences. And so we end up oftentimes with, I think, a lot of options that are uh, not very appealing. And this is why we have so many institutional, large institutional nursing homes that are really, you know, much more geared towards, uh, you know, j- just simply uh, – 
almost warehousing older adults versus actually providing them with a high quality of life and a high quality of care. And so I think if COVID has, has done anything, it's, it's really brought a lot of attention and discussion to this. And a lot of people have asked me like, well, why wasn't why wasn't anyone talking about this and, and what, you know how, how did we get here? I said a lot of us. You know, Phyllis was talking about it. I was talking about it, but nobody was listening. And I think that's really what's what's changed is that there was a group of us kind of that, that have been screaming this for a long time. Hey, we have staffing shortages. We don't pay our staff enough. Hey, we have old uh, buildings that are very institutional. Hey, we have we have these models of of, of care that are really uh, not very resident uh, directed or focused or centered, and and yet. They persisted for a long time, and this is an opportunity here to kind of rethink the entire model from who needs a nursing home, what might nursing home care look like, how, how, do, we, how do we make certain that uh, everybody is, is, is well, well cared for, and, and, and I, I hope that, uh, unfortunately, it, it took this pandemic to get us here, but at least we've started a, a, a national conversation on these issues. And I was really pleased, for example, to see the, the um, you know, uh, the Biden uh, camp uh, put forward a, a proposal about dramatically increasing uh, resources around home and community-based mm-hmm. services. And, you know, that, you know, we have a million individuals nationally on, on the wait list for those services, far too many. Uh, you know, we, we, we know we have a shortage of, uh, of services, and so how, how do we actually um, begin to provide those services and then think about retailing nursing home care in a way that's uh, in the best interest of, 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 of the older adults and, 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 and the individuals that are, that are working in these, in these settings? But as we, um, as we mentioned before, uh, it, a lot of it has to do with mindset and um, I don't know if you want to get into the, 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 the profit um, model of nursing home facilities. Um, and there's a pro- proliferation of um, nursing homes around the country that are owned by large chains that are very profit-driven. I always say um, that uh, money has to be generated from somewhere. It's not like reimbursement is a dirty word. It, I don't believe it is because the, the money has to come from somewhere. It just depends on your mindset and how you approach uh, the people that are entrusted to your care. So uh, you've gone into the taking care of people business, and taking care of people should come first. But I understand there are, these are complicated issues. Maybe you could shed light on it. I know they say that the profit margins are, are very small, um, and that's part of the issue. But I think that we have to look at it differently. Like you say, if we're going to provide an environment where people have a quality of life and a quality of care, um, You used a word, it it really kind of uh, shook me because I used that word when I wrote my first book and people said, don't use that word, and you used the word warehouse, and Mm -hmm. I did use that word because that's how I feel about it. It's about those people over there in that place, they are put there to, you know, until they are not here anymore and uh, for lack of using another word. And so we don't care about them kind of out of sight, out of mind. Mm -hmm. But I think what people don't realize is we're talking about our future selves. So it's not about them or us. It's really about all of us. 
100% agree, and I don't like the word either, but I think it, 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 the reason it shakes all of us is because we, we, can, we can see it. Uh, there, there are plenty of nursing homes that aren't, that aren't providing a, a high levels of quality, and uh, you and I have both been in a, those nursing homes, and we've been in very good nursing homes. So I'm not somebody that's uh, suggested that every, every nursing home is bad. There, there are some good ones, and, and, and there are some not so good ones. But we, we need, you know, I, I want there to be good options for, for you know, my parents and then myself when I'm when 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 I'm uh, in my long term care years. And so I, uh, you're exactly right on on that issue. It's not a it's not a them. It's a it's an us because this is this is all of this is the model for, for, for that all of us will will ultimately access. You know, to your to your question about I I, I like the way you frame that this isn't you know there, there are a lot of words here like you know reimbursement is not a dirty word for profit is, is you know there 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 are good for profit nursing homes out there but i i think what's really been uh, you know disappointing is that th- this industry has really shifted and you know, some of the large chains that, that we have now, uh, a lot of them are, it used to be that the chains were both the owner and the operator, and it was kind of transparent as to who was the, you know, accountable entity. It was this, it was this chain. And today, uh, the ownership of a lot of nursing homes around the country has gotten very complex. And so mm-hmm. many of them have split the ownership from the operations. And so you have a private equity group you have a real estate investment trust that, that owns the real estate, the most valuable asset, but then you have this, this operator who is basically paying rent and operating a, a, a nursing home. And who, who's accountable for high quality care right. there? And what happens in a pandemic like the one we're having where you, know, you have these huge uh, declines in, in revenue that we've been talking about, much, much fewer admissions, uh, that, that operator still has to has to pay the bills, has to pay their right. their their rent every month, and so uh, how do we actually think about these models that that may work may and <laughs> in, in normal times may be okay, but in a in a in a pandemic, I just I I, I think I think part, what, one of the outgrowths of, of 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 COVID is going to be some rethinking of the, the these very complicated ownership models where. I don't know if a dollar into the facility is going to this private equity group or going to the wages of that uh, direct caregiver. And mm-hmm. I, I think even as we, we put billions of dollars into helping this industry get back on its feet, I, 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 I'm still not certain where those dollars are going. So I, I think you're absolutely right that on average margins aren't, you know, it's not like nursing homes are, are uh, hugely profitable. The, 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 the profit margins are, are relatively thin on average, but there are some some actors in this, some some bad apples, or some actors that are quite that are, that are making good profits and aren't putting dollars back into uh, in, into the care of the residents. And so we we need accountability. I think uh, a long-winded way of saying we, we, nursing homes need more resources, but they also need need accountability. We need to um, we we need to make certain that the dollars are are, are going where 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 they need to go in terms of of improving the care and lives of. of of, of the residents because uh, a lot I of what we're in, talking in some fa- go ahead oh, sorry. Sorry, sorry I just wanted to say I think in some facilities or organizations that I've seen some of them are very top heavy and that would be one way of um, maybe putting some more dollars I mean I can't tell people obviously how to run their organizations 
But um, I was struck when I went to uh, the Leonard Florence Center for Living and spoke with Barry Berman and um, asked how he was able to have some of uh, this uh, very uh, staff wealthy, I'll say, um, you know, in terms of numbers, how he was really able to do that. I asked several people that question. And um, he doesn't have an assistant. Um, You know, um, it's part of the Jewish philanthropy, so it's a large organization. They share an assistant. They share, you know, quite a number of positions so that each building doesn't have to have these additional salaries. Um, I mean, I guess that's one approach. Like I said, it's not for me to tell a person how to... Uh, what their structure should be, but maybe these are ways that have to be considered when people are looking at people's balance sheets and seeing if there is, you know, uh, there are different positions that can be um, modified so that it would affect the, the, the money that's being paid for the care as opposed to on the administrative end. Uh, I, I, I agree completely. We need greater accountability, and uh, we've heard a lot of stories of, you know, some, some nursing homes or nursing home chains being a lot leaner than others, and I think you're right, whether it's CEO salaries or dollars going to this private equity group, it's, it's dollar, the, the, these dollars aren't going back into uh, direct resident care, and so I, th- I think more transparency and accountability around uh, the finances of these nursing homes is going to be important coming out of this, so we can, we can make certain that uh, we're getting what we pay for in the way of, of uh, these services, because we, we are the payer, we being the government. It's, it's, it's Medicare paying for short-stay services, Medicaid paying for those those, those long-stay residents, and uh, I, I'm not always certain we're getting a level of quality commensurate with our investment. No, oh, I agree 100%. I do have um, a question. Maybe you could shed light on it for me, because I always wonder when uh, some ownerships um, say that, and I hear that the margins are very small, they're not making much. If that's the case, why do they go out and buy hundreds of other facilities in other states around the country? Can you shed light on that? <laughs> it's like the old joke, right? Uh, we're, lo- we're losing money, so we'll, we'll make it up on volume, right? <laughs> it's like it doesn't, doesn't make any sense. So I, I, you Thank know, I, you. I, I, I'm glad you laughed. That's right. I, I, no, I think it. I, I think sometimes there's this argument about about economies of, of of scale where maybe you could spread out costs over over additional buildings. But uh, as we were just discussing, I'm not certain that's that's really what's going on here. I think I I, I think here that, that you know on the one hand they're 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 claiming poverty, but a, a better indicator is that they're they're growing. And if if if, if they're growing and 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 they want to expand, that 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 suggests to all of us that. Uh, there, there, there's, there's money being made, and so I, I, I have trouble believing uh, that they're, they're actually losing money. So I, I think that it, it's interesting. You mentioned in my introduction that one of the uh, policy roles I have is I sit on the Medicare Payment Advisory Commission, or MedPAC, and every year we look at, at the margins, both the Medicare margins and the overall margins for different, different providers that are paid for by Medicare, and obviously one of those providers are skilled nursing facilities or, or, or nursing homes, as they're more commonly known. And 
You know, this issue always comes up of, on the one hand, should we believe the cost reports and these margins, or should we believe growth? (laughs) Like the the fact that there's an expansion. And I I oftentimes think if if, if you're seeing facilities expanding and chains expanding and willing to take on more 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 care, that suggests to me that there there there's there's actually there's margins associated with this care. I'm so glad to hear you say that. Because sometimes when I say these things um, to certain people, they look at me like um, like I don't know what I'm talking about, but it just makes intuitive sense to me. Like, yes. why would you buy more of something? I understand about um, scaling up, but yes. I just don't understand why you'd buy more of something if you're really not making anything at the first thing. But I'm right. That's it. So that's why I asked you that question. What do you, what do you think of the viability of assisted living facilities as a substitute for um, some kinds of nursing home situations? Because it's a different kind of living environment, and some assisted living facilities are now providing different levels of care. Um, what do you think I, about that as a, as a viability for, yeah, for so kind of I, a long-term I'm, care model? So I think it's worth recognizing, you know, that, that some assisted living facilities have also been hit really hard by COVID. They've received a lot less attention relative to nursing homes, but uh, I, I do think they've also had um, cases among among residents and, and staff. And so I know in talking to some assisted living providers, they're, they're worried as well in the long term about what does assisted living look like. I, I think you're exactly right that many individuals have have preferred assisted living. It's a, it's a less restrictive environment. It's, it's definitely, uh, I, I think, in a, in a lot of cases, a higher quality of life. Um, and as you said, uh, there, there is some, some overlap in that, you know, more and more they're taking higher and higher acuity residents on who I, you know, look like kind of nursing home residents from 20, right. 25 years ago. I mean, these are um, residents requiring a lot of services. And so assisted living is really changed a lot and I, I, I do think it, 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 it is a, a, a viable model. I do think it's going to face some of the same challenges that nursing homes face about kind of what is its role in, in this post-COVID world in terms of congregate you know, housing or living situations. Is anybody going to want to live here? Of course, some, some look more like apartments than mm-hmm. you know, a, a, a more institutional nursing home, but there, there's a lot of different models that are, that are out there. Uh, so I, I I do worry a little bit about about that whether there'll be any kind of implications for this sector. The other the other part I, I, I think a lot about, however, is assisted living is is a is a great substitute if you have the money to pay for it. But there's obviously a lot of individuals in our system they either qualify for Medicaid. Medicaid doesn't pay for a lot of assisted living, as as we know. It, it's um, it it. it it won't pay for the housing part of it. So you're, you're uh, in, in most states, it's, it's largely a private pay sector. There, there's, there's relatively little Medicaid. And so I, I do think that that's been a barrier towards really kind of growing this area. It's a, it's a really important part of the long-term care system. And I think obviously people are paying out of pocket for it. They, they, they really want these services. They don't want to be in a nursing home. They want everything assisted living has to offer. I think that side of it I, I really like, but uh, I, I, I do worry about the, the lack of services for, through Medicaid, and I also worry if they'll face some of the same challenges that mm. nursing homes face over the next uh, few years. Do you, 
do you think there'll be any potential initiatives exploring utilizing Medicare dollars for assisted living facilities? Yeah, I, where I think there could be something, and it's the same with, with nursing homes, is this kind of bifurcation that we've had where, you know, Medicare is paying for the health care services for individuals living in nursing homes and uh, Medicaid's paying for their, their nursing home services or an assisted living. Medicare's paying for their health care services, but their, uh, their, their long-term care services and housing are being paid for out of pocket. And I think there's a, an opportunity here to maybe kind of bridge some of that. And there have been some very innovative models out there that have offered uh, different Medicare Advantage plans that are that are offered through a through a like the Erickson Advantage plan. Brookdale has one. So several of the big kind of senior living companies have have their own Medicare Advantage plans, and it, it, it's a it's a great way that you can actually put clinicians on site and have them offering services right there. And they're at risk, and so they have every incentive to invest in both health care and good quality long-term care to keep you out of the hospital and keep you out of the right. emergency department. Uh, so I, I, I do think there, there's real growth potential for those kind of models. And one of the areas, you know, the, the, the analog in, in, in nursing homes would be the institutional special needs plans or ISNPs. And I know I'm getting very technical probably here, but think of it as, as, a, as a Medicare Advantage or managed care plan uh, that would come in and operate in, in the nursing home. And basically, they wouldn't pay the nursing home directly for uh, long stay or long-term care services, but if the resident needed any Medicare services like short-stay skilled services, this plan would be the payer. This plan would also typically have a nurse practitioner there on site. So you're really adding clinical services in the building and really trying to prevent individuals from, from once again going to the hospital or to the emergency department. So that's one way that we might bridge kind of the housing, uh, long-term care components in nursing homes and assisted living with uh, the Medicare uh, healthcare side. In a way, uh, the facility uh, kind of becomes the the manager of that of that resident, um, overseeing the care. Obviously, having somebody in the building all the time, like a nurse practitioner, is very advantageous. Obviously, through the years, there have been many situations where uh, somebody needs to get in touch with a medical professional, a doctor, whatever, and you page them. You have to wait for somebody to call back, whereas if you have somebody in the building, whatever situation can be managed in real time. Uh, that's exactly right. Any way that we can increase uh, clinical services, I, I think a lot of your listeners know this already, but before I started studying nursing homes, I just assumed uh, there was a doctor there a lot of the time, and, and they're really, you know, you're laughing, because uh, it, it's really, it's, 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 there's not a physician there uh, 24-7. It, it's, uh, you know, there, there's a real need for increased uh, clinical infrastructure. One of, my, one of my colleagues wrote a paper several years ago where he called physicians uh, missing in action in nursing homes, and it's really true. Like, we need more physicians and, and nurse practitioners in these buildings. And we've uh, we've seen time and time again that when uh, nursing homes are under these models that invest in clinical services, or they go ahead and just invest on their own, uh, the outcomes are much better for the for the for the nursing home residents. Um, absolutely, and it reduces hospitalizations because yes. a, a situations can be managed right there, as I say, in real time. What about the uh, 
the growth of telehealth in nursing homes, especially for those that are in more remote locations who may not have the opportunity or availability of nurse practitioners um, in their in their midst. How, what's your attitude towards that, and what initiatives are are being um, you know play you know what initiatives are are happening in that realm? Yeah, so I, I think there's a lot of potential for telemedicine in nursing homes. Let me, let me tell you about it quickly about a study we did here pre-COVID sev- several years ago here in Massachusetts. We partnered with a with a telehealth provider and a nurse, small nursing home chain here in here in here in the state, and we actually randomized. So as I said, a small chain, 13 buildings. Uh, you know, so it, it wasn't a big study, but half half the buildings uh, received uh, off-hour telemedicine coverage, and the other half just went with the business's you know standard operating uh, mm-hmm. practice of if there was a call, it was they they, they dialed the the covering physician. But you know, if if a, if a problem happened in one of the telehealth buildings, they wheeled in the the video card, and mm-hmm. the the resident was looking eye to eye with a with a physician. And we found, uh, and this won't surprise you, Phyllis that there was a decline in transfers to the hospital in the buildings that, that had the, uh, the, the telehealth. And it was an incredible success. We were obviously thrilled by the results, and we actually found that the savings to Medicare uh, completely paid for the cost of the program. But here's where things get complicated. The, the chain was paying for the telehealth, Whereas the savings were going to the Medicare program, and it was huh. that disconnect that really doomed the the, the project. And so, right after we uh, published our study and got some fanfare and were presenting it at different meetings, and people were really excited about it, the nursing home chain, in spite of these positive results, canceled the model and they they, they did away with telehealth because they said we can no longer justify paying for this because we're 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 footing the bill and Medicare's getting the the savings and that's the problem we need to uh, bridge that disconnect such that um, when when nursing homes are at risk like the the the, the models we were just talking about where they're they're controlling you know the, the the Medicare dollars through through a Medicare Advantage plan or they're part of an accountable care organization. Uh, or, or other uh, model that, that kind of puts them uh, at risk for some of this spending, then, then we see investments in telehealth. But uh, if they have to do this out of their bottom line, uh, the, the, you know, they're not going to invest in this. And that's, I, I, don't, I don't blame them for that. We need to come up with models where we can finance telehealth. Now, one of the interesting things that's happened, as you know, under, under COVID is that right. um, we've begun to reimburse telehealth, not just in rural buildings, but around, you know, around the country. And so it'll be really interesting to follow whether we kind of continue to, to pay for telehealth and whether that leads to this huge increase in, in coverage of services in, in, in nursing homes. Because I think without that coverage and without these kind of payment models, that encourage nursing homes to kind of play here. I just don't think we're going to see widespread adoption. Interesting, very interesting. I, I know um, uh, someone who um, owns a telehealth company, and we've talked about this many, many times. And uh, there, there is some success with with nursing homes bringing telehealth in, but most of it, them are in more remote locations. 
Yeah, and th- and in those remote locations, Medicare will pay for it. But in in the kind of urban area that we were, you know, we were studying nursing homes, basically in the Boston area, uh, Medicare wouldn't pay for it. So it was really the the nursing home chain having having to pay for it. And and until either you have Medicare payment or that we we put the nursing home at at risk for these hospitalizations, and they have some incentive to to potentially pay for for the technology uh, we're just not going to see widespread adoption mm. but but they but they are penalized for uh, as we're coming down to the end they are penalized if they have too many rehospitalizations within a short period of time within 30 days correct that's or correct so so we do have the skilled nursing facility value-based purchasing program where they where they can be penalized for these these uh, readmissions so the, there 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 could be some some cases where they're incentivized to, to invest in, in telemedicine, but uh, it, the, the incentives, at least on a national basis right now, are pretty weak. And so unless they enroll in, in, in programs that, are, that have stronger incentives, I, I don't think we're going to see widespread adoption. The, the other more direct approach here is obviously just to, for Medicare to cover these services uh, on, a, on a permanent basis. I don't know if that's going to happen, but if it does, I, I do think we'll see a real growth in, in the use of these services. Just briefly in the last two minutes, why do you think they wouldn't? You know, I, I think there's always a concern that, that telemedicine is not uh, it's, it's, it's basically low value in, in these in these um, in these settings, and that it's duplicative. So it, it, there's this feeling that uh, they're they're going to they're going to bill lots of visits, and very few of these visits are actually going to lead to decreased hospitalizations. And so that's that's not what we found in, in our study here in Massachusetts. But I, I I do believe that there's a sentiment out there that that the, these services aren't going to actually you know substitute for uh, either uh, in-person services or they're they're not going to actually prevent the, those transfers they're just going to lead mm-hmm. to a lot of lot of billing and so I, th- I think there's there, there's some real suspicion on the part of the payers here mm. but I think there have been studies like just like yours that have shown that um, it can reduce hospitalizations but I guess maybe there need to be more studies that that bear that out but um, Certainly, as long as this COVID situation uh, is upon us, especially in facilities um, around the country where there's, there's a lot, there are a lot of spikes of, um, of the virus, there's going to be more need for, you know, an immediate consultation. And, and sometimes the only way you can do that, especially if people aren't allowed to visit the building, is through telehealth. I, I completely agree, and it'll be interesting if, we can get some evidence from how this is working under COVID and whether we can show that there were, there were you know, real benefits and that the, this was really high-value care these individuals were receiving. It wasn't duplicative of other services and that in some instances it, it kept them out of the hospital. I think that could be really valuable and help make the case that, that these are actually high-value services. But I, I, I think that's always been the suspicion that these aren't, these aren't going to, to um, actually uh, – decrease hospitalizations or they're, mm. they're uh, going to um, sort of lead to lots and lots of uh, increased billing without, without really um, uh, showing, showing value. Well, you know, I, I can only say that I think this has just been the most fascinating conversation for me. I hope it was for the listeners. So thanks so much, Dr. Grabowski, for taking the time to share your valuable information for the listeners of Senior Straight Talk. And uh, Please join us on our next episode for more informative conversations for the senior years of our lives. Until then, stay safe, stay well, and stay tuned. 
Thank you for listening to Senior Straight Talk. Join your hosts, Phyllis Amon and Rubina Chaudhry again soon for another episode on the Voice America Empowerment Channel or your favorite podcast platforms.